Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. Here at Promo Kitchen, we are proud to be partners with and members of PPAI, the sponsor of today's episode. Today's Promo Kitchen podcast is brought to you by Promotional Products Workweek, which takes place from May the 23rd to May the 27th this year. Promotional Products Workweek is an industry-wide celebration dedicated to increasing awareness, building your business, and uniting our entire industry with one mission, one purpose, and one voice. So from May the 23rd to the 27th, get together with your team, your peers, and your community to meet and greet, serve your community, advocate for the industry, and celebrate your customers and clients during Promotional Products Workweek. For more information, check out ppai.org slash events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by fellow chef and rabble-rouser Jason Lukash, president of Orgadio. We have a very special episode lined up for you today as we speak with one of the emerging entrepreneurs in our industry, Adam Walterscheid. Ask Adam how his day is going, and the response you typically get is, it's great, just another day in t-shirt paradise. The son of a cotton farmer, Adam learned early how cotton was made and distributed for wearables. Being a Division I athlete taught him that it's not just about you, it's about the team around you. In 2003, Adam founded Pony Express, one of the first screen printers in the USA to introduce soft hand, water-based discharge printing to corporate markets. In 2010, he sold Pony Express and promptly started thinking about his next venture. And on January 1st, 2011, he established that venture when T-Shirt Tycoon Solutions, Inc. was born. T-Shirt Tycoon is an expert in apparel and apparel decoration, private labeling, and merchandising a company's brand through wearables. Since its founding, the company has experienced exponential growth and has been recognized as one of the industry's fastest growing suppliers for the last few years. And in 2015, Adam was selected as Supplier Entrepreneur of the Year by ASI. I remember sitting in the audience at the awards show in Chicago thinking to myself, this is definitely someone to watch. The future is bright for T-Shirt Tycoon with a goal of becoming a $40 million company in the next five years. Let's find out how he's going to get there. Adam, it's an honor to have you on the program today. Welcome. Thank you. That was a very nice way to introduce it. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, hopefully it doesn't go all downhill from here. <laughs> and I, I'll give a shout out to Jason at, at 7 o'clock Pacific time right now in San Francisco where Jason is. And he is uh, groggy eyed. This is a guy who actually goes to sleep at 5 in the morning. So uh, Jason has about two hours of sleep and he's been a, a good sport joining us at this early hour. So, uh, Adam, why don't we start off? I'm really curious as to why you saw an opportunity in the private label market. Tell me about the thinking and what started T-Shirt Tycoon. You know, when we were at Pony, we were really working hard at perfecting the discharge water-based process. And, you know, part of it is controlling your environment. And the other, you know, the other part is controlling your garment. And so when we started Tycoon, it was more about really crafting a garment that was made to be printed by a printer for a printer. And so when we crafted that, we thought about what type of brand we would want to be. And in a branded business, I just think that if you can't beat them, 
and that being their own brand, then you should join them. And so that's our business model. It's it's the Apple versus the Microsoft approach. You know, do you want a Hanes, a Gildan, or any other brand's name in your garment? Or do you want your own? Do you want that to represent the closet versus the drawer? So those two have different ROIs to them. And one is for built for lifestyle, and we handpicked out of the closet 20 times, and one is made to go into the drawer and may never come out. So private label for us is a natural fit. It's just how we are. It's who we are. It's how we're built. You know, when we build somebody a garment, we're trying to build them a garment that has their brand DNA built into it and, and be that proud, you know, silent third partner that helps execute the brand and represent it for what it should be. But even brand police should be able to sign off on what we do. You know, Adam, I'm thinking as you're saying this to me, you know, I'm thinking from my own distributor background, I'm thinking about the t-shirt market being famously competitive and cutthroat. And I'm wondering how it is that you compete against the big RFPs when pennies count and you're going up against the usual suspects, Gildan, Fruit of the Loom, Haynes, so on and so forth. Well, you know, two things. One is logistics. I mean, you know, we're talking about an ASI market that's 22.8 billion and 20% of that number one category is t-shirts. And so 4.8 billion of that is spent every year on t-shirts. And so, you know, getting down to delivering that in super small quantities really, really quickly at a full package, complete level, one price, one source out the door from design to, you know, shipment, the process is made to be simple and be proud of the product. And so we're not going in and trying to sell high price t-shirts. We're going in and we're upgrading people's basics. Right. You know, we're going toe to toe against the Gildans and, you know, everybody else in between. And truth is, we're not asking for an extra penny. We're asking to put the best product on the field. And we believe our tagless private label with a quality blank and a soft hand print is enough to upgrade people's basics and not ask them for more money. Ask them for a better product and an easier process. I just want to chime in really quick and say that's why I kind of fell in love with this guy. I mean, he's like us, but for apparel, which is even riskier doing the low minimum stuff. So Adam, I just wanna I just wanna touch base on that part again and just really explain to everyone like really what is your minimum when it comes to like fully custom piece of garment? Like what are we talking here? How small of a quantity can you guys do? You know, we have a base price. Base price is gonna be any garment that we narrow down to. It's gonna include the label. It's going to include one location, two colors, and a 14 by 16 imprint, and that's any ink type to get to the softest hand. We'll ask you a few basic questions, and we'll drill down to exactly how to hold the integrity of the art, show you 27 ways to print that art without creative artwork, and then if you wanted, we could do creative art, but from there, we tackle the project, asking quantity and timelines and, you know, what garment they've used in the past. And once we qualify it, then we design it to that price point. And basically, we're never really up against price. We're looking yeah. at garments that are executed by price up front based on the economic scenario of the program. And it's a keystone business model for us. Everything we do is on an A. It's very easy to show upgrades and add-ons and everything else from that base price. And from there, you can dye a garment in 72 pieces in a pigment dye. You make your own comfort colors, 72 piece by color. You can mix that across the five sizes that you need. You can PMS match your company's color in a t-shirt at 144 units. Right. That's a 21-day process. If you want to just print, really, we'll print any quantity. We do have a minimum invoice, a less than minimum invoice of 350 Outside of that, if you want 12 garments, we'll do them. And you'd be shocked at the amount of people that want small quantities that are willing to pay the price for them and get the right product. Yeah. We compete on 72s, 144s, 288s, the everyday order. You know, we'll get the occasional 1,200, 
6,000, 20,000, 50,000. But the reality is our business is built on 144, 288, 576. You know, and yeah. so that's the everyday order that I think that the Gildans have trouble. They can provide the garment. The process of the quality of the product is just a different thing. When I first got into the industry, when I started Right Sleeve, we were exclusively wearables. I didn't even know that there was a place where you could go to a trade show and look at pens and Bluetooth speakers <laughs> and the like. It shows how you know out of it I was. But the point was, is I cut my teeth selling apparel, the Gildans, American Apparel. I remember when they were first coming out. And I can tell you, and I think even this remains true to even this day, that there's not a lot of places you can go to that are flexible when it comes to dyeing small lots of shirts. I mean, it's a pain in the you-know-what. So from my perspective of thinking about this from a distributor perspective, I can definitely see the market opportunity for what you're doing. I mean, usually when a customer wants to have something that's custom dyed, we would be advising our clients like, listen, it's got to be at least in the thousands because A, the manufacturer is not going to have an interest. B, you're going to have to have a decent budget. C, you're going to have to have time because this will probably get screwed up and delayed. And then D, the customer says, well, thanks, but no thanks. I'll go with the regular off-the-shelf shirt, which is a shame for everyone. So I think it's a really exciting space that you're in, and I can definitely see it growing given that you're executing it so efficiently as opposed to just being that sort of shifty joker that <laughs> isn't really committing to timelines. So that's coming from experience. Well, I'll tell you the concept we just, you know, starting to finish up here a little bit is one that mixes medias. Mixed media isn't a new word. It's one that everybody understands. But most of the time when you say mixed media, you think of screen printed plastisol mixed with some embroidery or, yeah. or, Tackle, or applique yeah. or something yeah. generic. But the truth is, this is just mixed media, but we're mixing dye with print. And we've come up with a new concept called brew stains. Wow. Got some distributors that really focus on microbreweries. And so... What I did is I went in and I went into development and we developed brew stains, lager stains, blondes, pilsners, amber, and box. And what we do is we print on the shirt when it's white, full color, single color, depends on the look we're going for. We've really got two different ones. We've got a tone on tone that we print white on white on the garment, then we dye it and it just becomes this beautiful tone-on-tone print, one that an artist couldn't guess the color that it would need to be because the white ink takes on the dye different than the blue shirt, but they're all on hue. The other version is a full-color digital print. You get photorealistic look. You can print it in a 14 by 16 box, and then we overstain it. Let's say that the best art typically is in a beer label, right? They spend a lot of time making those things look really cool. So we take that, we print it on the shirt, and we over-dye it to the color of the beer that it is. So, yeah, we've, we've just put the concept out, and I think I can apply that across any beverage or liquor or, or even beer. And so just over-dyeing and controlling that in small quantities is what's going to bear the programs for tomorrow. You know, and, and we feel like we can go after niches and really attack those niches and make them be big enough that there's enough distributors that want to chase that business with us. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, when you were just at beer stands, I thought you guys were just drinking some beer pouring out the shirts. I was like, dude, be sign us up for that. But um, <laughs> the innovation side, I, I just want to touch on that, on the innovation part. Someone that's in a sector where there is a lot of innovation, and I look at the peril and it, it doesn't seem like there's that much innovation you know, from the outsider's perspective, how are you guys, like, actually coming up with stuff like that? How are you innovating and kind of, like, stepping and trying to be one step ahead of the competition? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's it's just the difference in how we're built. You know, people ask me all the time, do you go direct? And 
No, I mean, I have a very focused business model. What I do is I support distributors. There's always a distributor in the middle, be it at retail or be it at corporate markets. And so with that being said, the business model is focused so that it always aligns our interest. And being innovative is what allows us to serve both markets. We bring retail to corporate markets, and we know that for 50% of corporate markets, that's way behind trends two to three years. And we feel like we can bridge that gap pretty quickly and pretty easily. We've taken what's in L.A. and just put it in Garland, Texas. Print and design, wash and dye, and alterations through cut, make, and trim. You know, and so everything evolves very quickly because of that. You know, I'm working on a process right now that's called extraction, where I'm actually pulling the dye out of the garment and creating tobacco washes for a music brand that signs artists in Texas country music called Cowboy Militia. And it's going to be tobacco washes cowboy yoke inserts and really, really custom things that reach that audience. The key is finding, you know, the right business model, one that holds the price points that allows everybody to be strong in small quantities. And so a lot of times if they let us show them the business model, the strategy behind it, we'll ensure margins and we'll ensure that it's built to be the best product for the price and sell the most units over the longest period of time. It's a beautiful part about our approach. It's very consultative. So you're going to get to understand some business models and strategies that we go to work on every day. And hopefully we fit one and tailor one to your distribution model. Right. Jason, I was reflecting back on a conversation that we had a couple weeks ago about an initial encounter you had with Adam at an EME event. And I'm wondering whether like you can tell the story about yeah, sure. Adam's approach. And then I want Adam, you to comment about your sales approach because it seemed to be very unconventional. So to clarify, my partner Mike was at an EME with Adam and this is how the story started. But we originally kind of told Adam about the whole EME facilitate power meeting business model because it had worked well for us in the past and just based on another rebel, I was like, dude, this would work for you. So we got him in and he did an EME and Mike was at the event and I was like, how'd the event go? And he's like, yeah, it went pretty good. I was like, how was Adam's response? He's like, dude, Adam's doing something crazy. I'm like, well, I'm not surprised by this, but how crazy are we talking here? He's like, Adam's actually interviewing customers and he's only going to select you know, five out of the 40 customers at this event to do business with them. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, we can just look at the dollar spend for that event and you break it down to only five people. It's insane, but dude, that's hardcore rebel style there. So Adam, can you just like clarify on that and kind of explain the mentality behind that business decision? Yeah, well, you know, it's not coming from a cocky or conceited approach. It's really just right. a matter of resources. And, you know, with the consultative approach, you, you know, you've got to have a certain level of service and expectation around that. I want to take the companies I commit to very seriously, just like I would want them to take me. And so for me to narrow my approach to five, sets an expectation of a speakeasy, of a point of differentiation and a commitment level. And one that's honored through day-to-day, -day, you know, delivering of consistent product and a service level that you're proud to get. And so I can't work for everyone. And so really it's just a matter of knowing what your resources will hold and making a number and a decision based on the potential size and number of people you're going to talk to in distributorships. You think one company, but really they may have five, six salespeople along with three or four people supporting them inside. And three or four of those are, are really large commitment for a team that's already, you know, got a good number of those that running everyday business. And so, you know, really for a company that can commit to everyday wearable business is tough as well. And so we like to really find the rebels of the business that really understand wearables, its category and where it lies in their geographical location and even in their own mix of business. 
And if that formula is right, well, then we'll go to whatever extent we need to make sure they're where they need to be with the product they need to be there with at the price points that will sell through to their target audience. And we're fully committed to making that happen for the right audience. Right. You know, I've got a question for the two of you guys. I've been thinking since you started speaking, Adam, about this idea of getting customers to change. So the two of you are in the supply side of the business. You sell to distributors. And for the most part, distributors don't like to change. I would also probably say that really anyone out there, any consumer is resistant to change and they're usually skeptical about you know, new ways of doing business, new suppliers, they're inundated, they're tired and all this stuff. If you were to be giving advice to a supplier listening to this podcast that was thinking about getting into the promotional products business, how do you overcome those objections of being the new guy? on the block. How do you demonstrate the value of a different way of doing business when you're communicating to a market that is pretty calcified and resistant to change? We still run into this every day, but our mentality at least was leads and all these other companies are doing this way. Let's just look at what they're doing and do 100% the opposite. Right. When we first went to PPAI show, people saw like the advertising we were doing, which is just like, you know, no minimum they'll set up full digital five days without seeing the products and be like, what's with that? That's crazy, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's what we did. We just we just tried to, like, do the exact opposite of the competition right off the bat. And it's picked up steam and it's done really well for us, but it's not for everyone. I mean, it's a huge risk. And Adam, how about you? I think for me it's easy. You know, if you just want a screen printed T-shirt, there's 57,300 people in the United States that do that. If you want your own brand or your client's brand, you know, you're looking for a strategy difference, you want to protect your business, your competitors don't know exactly what you're using or how they're using it. For me, it was simple on how to get to it. I think also doing business with people who you like doing business with, you know, I, that's one of the things I admire about Jason, that everybody he steps across just absolutely falls in love with them. He can make anybody laugh. People buy from who they like and who they enjoy, and we're always looking for those as well. And so, you know, one of the things I've always watched Jason do is just that. And so what I take from this business is that it's very much a relationship-based business, and that's really what, you know, some of these power meetings and, and EMEs and facilitates are. They're relationship-building timeframes that really allow you to get to know someone as a person and then just align interests and figure out where it can go from there. Yeah, I love that answer, and I also don't know that, it's really any different if you're a supplier breaking into the market or you're a distributor breaking into the market looking to sell to end customers. I think that to quote Seth Godin, who was at the expo this past year, you know, he'll often say often the riskiest choice that you can take as an entrepreneur is the safe path. So if you come in and you're scared of speaking out or scared of looking silly or scared of doing the exact opposite of your biggest competitor, as you say, Jason, a lot of people are nervous about that and that they're going to be laughed off the stage. And if you think about this huge industry that we're in, you know, whether you're a supplier or a distributor, it's an industry that's heavily commoditized. It's crazy price competitive. And if you're going to carve out a niche for yourself, you're not going to do it by coming in, copying leads or Gemline or Sanmar. And those are great yeah. companies and great market leaders, but they're probably going to crush you if you're copying them. Whereas if you come and zig while they zag, well, sure, you may get laughed out of the room the odd occasion, but you're also going to attract a loyal tribe, a loyal group of followers that are going to advocate for you. And those are the people that are going to help you tip into the mainstream. So kudos to you yeah. guys. Yeah, you know, I'm just curious, man. Like a lot of people come up to us and they're like, 
I'm looking for her power banks in this price point of two dollars each, and I just I laugh and say a couple things before I respond to the email. My email response is just, "I have no interest in doing business with you." So what happens <laughs> when you when you have someone coming up to you? you know, I'm looking for 150 t-shirts at the buck fifty each with a you know full digital imprint. Like, what's your response? How do you handle those situations? It's always one where you want to establish kind of common ground. So what I like to do is I like to just send samples of my product. And so when we're talking through price, you have a touch and feel perspective to the proposition that I'm giving you. And it typically starts with an open price pointed thing. And we'll start out that base price at 144. And, you know, truth is, if you'll pay the 350, we'll make you the 12 garments you want. Maybe sometimes that's an apparel line and they just need the samples to go to market to pre-book their orders. I mean, there's just a lot of ways that sometimes that makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. But if you're a distributor that's wanting to bet on the come and go, put that 350 into a customer we have that but you know what we like to do is just say hey look if we qualify the project and it's one that we agree that is a retail type program then we'll actually do the design up front handle it all for them build the model to the agreed economic side and quantities and timelines and quality proposition all at the price we talked about and everybody's margins are insured and and it's a quick and easy process Adam, talk to me about Made in the USA. Is this a theme that you think will continue to grow over the next five or 10 years? Because I kind of see you at the tip of the spear, so to speak. Yeah, I think USA in wearables is a big deal. You know, in the 70s, the US was the powerhouse in textiles and NAFTA was signed and, you know, kind of flushed that trade away a little bit to a certain degree. There's certain parts of that trade that are spread across retail tiers and all of them have taught these large companies how to go overseas. And part of that group is who I work with that's teaching me how to do it stateside and teaching me things that they're seeing overseas that are being done and that are ecological, first of all, simplistic in execution and logic and repeatable. And so USA made should stand for quality, first of all. It should stand for quick delivery, second of all, and it should stand for that proud made in the USA inside the neck, you know, aligned with the brand that really wants to execute a garment to that extent. Being able to control the product and being able to do it in small quantities and do it really quickly is what makes USA very strong. I mean, if you're talking cut and sew, I can deliver 600 to 45,000 custom cut and sewn garments in 45 days. Right. Um, that's printed out the door. So if you look at that from a large volume perspective, yeah, it costs a little bit more. You get the quality proposition that goes with it. You get the private label and you get to build it for the brand that, that's investing in it. But the USA, the speed to market and ability to do it, it, it should be the same process, whether it's for 72 or if it's for 72,000. Yeah. I think USA is going to be very strong over the next five to 10 years, especially as the dollar is strong. I was just thinking as you were giving me that answer, if I think about the right sleeve business and whether you define a company like American Apparel as being vertically integrated, 100% made in the USA, I know there's some people who may argue against that, but let's say for sake of argument, they are. Certainly well over 50% of our apparel spend is either made in Canada or made in the US. And it has been that way for some time now. So we may be an outlier, but I just think it's a really exciting trend. I mean, sure, to some extent, we're doing it because we feel strongly about supporting the North American economy, but there's also a business reason for it, right? It may be a quality thing. It may be a speed to market. It may be... Product control. Yeah, product control. Private label is also another big thing. I mean, I know I'm speaking your language. And not all end customers are looking for the cheapest, dirtiest, commoditized price out there. I mean, certainly there's a big part of the market that wants that, 
there's also a pretty healthy side of the market that does not want that. And they're expecting distributors like us and suppliers like you, who we partner with, to have these high quality, good value solutions that aren't necessarily based on the lowest price. And Jason, I'd say the exact same thing is with you. When you look at your booth, you crazy guys are coming up with all these wacky things that are not right for everyone, but they're right for a certain segment of the market. And that's a pretty darn big side right. of the market. So it's a good place to be. Well, I think private label in general, I mean, you know, Jason, I'd be very curious to understand how it carries over into your product category, but you private label everything you do for your clients. It's a branded business. It's all about the logo right. that they're going to put on your product. And I just find it hard to believe that in a market that's driven by branded product that another brand of t-shirt would lead that market. It just shows me the softness of the market. It shows me the lack of creative way to deliver this widget. And for us, I mean, we still leave our brand on everything we make and people balk and complain and everything about that, but I don't care. I'm going to put it on there because I'm selling it retail also, you know, so it's got high perceived brand value. If it breaks, you know, nine months from now, I want someone to know where it came from so they can get it replaced. So people that complain about it not being private labeled all the way, like, screw them, I don't really want to deal with people like that, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's risky doing what we're doing, but... I think people actually appreciate that for electronics specifically, you know, and for apparel, I think people do want private label because it's kind of cool to make it 100% completely custom from their own, and I really think that's kind of kudos to you because you found a good niche in the conglomerate of apparel markets. This is shifting gears a little bit, but something that was on my mind that I wanted to ask you, Adam, wearable tech, is it here to stay? Are you plane in that space or will that be Origadio and T-Shirt Tycoon, you know, merging and becoming sort of like a, <laughs> a robotic uh, I mean, company? <laughs> we giggle, but Jason and I have had those conversations and if I was ever going to get into that space, that's who I'd want to get in with. I think they could probably teach me a thing or two. I'm a print kind of geek. And so, you know, if it's a matter of putting something into a garment, be it on the knit side, we're going to take a thread that's, you know, been wrapped in silver conductive that then allows it to carry a current to a power source and we want to screen print a, a lamp that lights up, we can do that. I mean, I've done that. The same technology that was used in Tron, you know, we've we've manufactured in our facilities and connected it with a power source that did it for Dr. Pepper on a backpack. Wearable technology is something that's moving, but it's moving so fast. Technology moves so fast that I think it's a niche within a niche. Would it be cool to say that we were the technology wearable leaders? It would, but I think it would be about that perfect product that leverages that technology. And so maybe it's a garment that runs campaigns that Jason and I sit down and figure out how to marry up technology and insert it into the garment and make it the most wearable, coolest, brandable product out there. And, and maybe then I can sell a t-shirt with a brand on it that says Origadio and has some value to it. Right. <laughs> I think we probably have time for one more question and then we'll turn it over to you, Adam, where you can tell people to find out more about you. Jason, do you want to do the honor of the last question? Sure, yeah. I've been thinking about this, and this is kind of one of my first experiences with Adam, and it's a good story. We've done trade shows just because we like doing them differently, and I kind of see the whole traditional trade show model changing dramatically, and I mean, everyone does PPI, because all your customers are there in Vegas, but one time at PPI, I was walking the trade show because I wanted to say what's up and hug it out, and whatever, and I, I couldn't find your booth, and then I went down to the food court to grab a slice of pizza at lunch, and I I see Adam there having about a bunch of customers and having a meeting and holding shop in the food court. Like, he was the mayor of the food court doing, <laughs> he had apparel out there, was having people, like, 
touch samples, and I was surprised just to find the fact that he was working on a setup day, which most people don't, usually they're building booths, but he was writing orders on a sample, on, on a setup day of a trade show. So Adam, let's, let's get some clarification going and talk a little bit into your mentality there and kind of what happened. <laughs> well, we're just trying not to be on the trade show floor. I mean, it, we want to be there in a setting that, that we can actually talk and control, and sometimes that's in a private room, sometimes it's in a suite, sometimes it's in a restaurant, and then other times it's in the cafeteria court. I mean, reality is that uh, the only time that distributors stop is during when they eat, and so they're going to come out of there regardless, and most of them are very happy to meet in the food court. It's convenient, and not being on that floor lets them get a you know an understanding that this isn't for everyone, and we've sought them out, specifically scheduled them in our time frame, and we typically will schedule three days solid of meetings in and out of the hotel and around that event, but never inside of it. And, you know, I can't say that that'll be our always our long-term strategy, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm trying to bite off my piece of the cafeteria and show garments <laughs> while people eat and, and get a little bit of a seminar approach while they're on their lunch break. The good news is people got to, you know, slice some pizza out of it, but also... <laughs> well, you're going to get me shut down. They're, they're going to catch on to me now. It's cool, man. I'll open up at a restaurant with you. Screw the trade show. We'll do it differently. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, there's no question that trade shows are still pretty important, but I don't think they're the channel that they used to be. I mean, we've been talking about EME and facilitate and these power meetings. I mean, that's something that you're seeing happening, you know, online and digital channels are exploding these days. And, you know, the food court could be the next thing, right? <laughs> the end of the day. I hope so. Yeah. It's uh, the second closest thing to my facility at that particular location. So that's all I can offer. <laughs> Yeah, well, hey, I look forward to seeing said food court when, when I'm in Dallas in a couple of days. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to have you in. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. So, Adam, we always like to close off these Promo Kitchen podcasts by giving our guest the last word, you know, an opportunity for you to tell listeners about where they can learn more about you and how they can track you down. Yeah, no, listen, if you're an early adopter, if you're a pioneer, if you're an individual that's looking for a product to champion, I urge you to reach out to me. You can find me at LinkedIn, Adam Walterscheid. That's W-A-L-T-E-R-S-C-H-E-I-D. I'm with T-Shirt Tycoon Solutions Incorporated. And you can hit me at info at ttycoon.com as well, or, or always my personal email at the company, Adam at the letter T, the word tycoon.com. And we'll set something up. This is a sport for me. I just like to play it at a high level. And if anybody wants to come play it with me, I'm happy to give them my time. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.